Sorry, assholes, your quiet day at the office is about to get severely fucked up. Guys, welcome back to the After Action Review. You know me, I'm Nick Guy, the world's most okayest Green Beret. And as usual, we have more than okay guests on. Joining us is Chief Warrant Officer Mike Durant. You guys, you guys are excited to hear, you know, to hear his story. I know you guys, there's a lot of hype following this, but you guys know his story. You've seen, you've seen the movie Black Hawk Down. Hopefully you've read the book by Mark Bowden. Um, but the story kind of ends with, with Mike being captured. And I think this is a really good opportunity to kind of hear that, that story in captivity. Uh, it's something that's rare nowadays in, in modern combat, modern warfare. You don't really see a whole lot of POWs. So when you get a chance to speak with uh, one, you take the opportunity. So Chief, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Nick, my pleasure. So, I mean, kind of just... Let's take it from the from the from the beginning, um, from you know, like just the shoot down. I mean, what happened? How did you find yourself in that situation? Yeah, so uh, you know, obviously the, the battle had uh, progressed pretty significantly by the time we rolled back in. We dropped our uh, chalk of Rangers off. I was the flight lead of the Ranger blocking force, and we had put our four aircraft in, dropped our our customers off, and we were holding north of the city and uh at that point theoretically my my job was done because we, we were going to extract largely using ground vehicles so we were essentially a contingency asset at that point and then uh super 61 got shot down and the commander called uh, me and, and wanted me to replace them over the target and and the the aircraft uh <clears throat> was being used as as a sniper slash close in fire support platform. In hindsight, probably not a good idea, uh, but you know it, it, it had been effective up to that point, and it was really only on that mission where it, it became obvious that you know this is a, a little bit too high risk in a, in a urban environment like that. But anyway, I, I flew in, replaced in six one, got in the orbit, and we didn't have snipers on board, so we were going to use our miniguns, and uh, you know that to, sh to shoot a minigun in a close-in situation like that, you, you can't be flying fast. I mean, you got to be flying fairly slow so you can see what's happening in, you know, in the alleyways and in between the buildings. So we're probably going 50 knots uh, and in a very tight orbit with another Blackhawk Super 6-2. So there's two of us sort of 180 out from each other. And there was little birds up overhead and, you know, still stuff happening all over the place. And uh, we made it around the pattern about three times when we got hit by an RPG. And the, uh, you know, the initial impact, I always describe it as hitting a speed bump in a parking lot. If you go, you know, over a speed bump at uh, whatever, 25 miles an hour, and you feel that jolt in the car, that's what it felt like when the RPG hit the aircraft. We didn't see it, it hit us in the tail. And, uh, but knew obviously we didn't hit because uh, it was, it was that, that significant of a jar of the airframe. And I was flying, I rolled out, you know, look around, do what pilots do, kind of looked at the instruments, made sure the thing was still flyable, and it was. Everything seemed normal. So my initial plan was to go back to the airfield because we're within really three minutes flight time of the airfield. I could see it. We just happened to be pointed straight at it. So I, uh, I sort of set my sights on that, and within seconds, the tail rotor just disintegrated. And, uh, you know, that's a bad thing, uh, it, it, whether you're a helicopter pilot or not I think you recognize we need those things on the aircraft so when it came off uh, it was uh, an e-ticket ride is an understatement the the tail rotor is supposed to keep the aircraft from spinning and that low air speeds in particular has a lot of authority over that and we were at pretty low airspeed as I talked about earlier so 
the, the spin accelerated very, very rapidly. It got to the point where we were spinning in a flat spin, completely out of control. And, and I couldn't really see anything other than the horizon line. So I was trying to keep the aircraft from flipping upside down while uh, Ray Frank, who is my co-pilot, uh, was, uh, was shutting the engines off because it seems counterintuitive, but the only thing you can do in that situation is actually kill the power and that stops the spin but then you fall from the sky, which is what we ended up doing, and uh, somehow uh, impacted on the wheels, and the wheels did their thing, landing gear did its thing, and we, uh, we crashed very, very hard, a lot of G-forces, but uh, everything worked as advertised, and we all survived. So, real quick, I just wanna go right uh, back real quick, just for my own personal edification. Um, so when you guys were, were kind of, operating is that is that i mean a close air asset i mean it's were you guys was somebody on the ground actually doing like army call for fire like aircraft call for fire or anything like that or was it was you seeing targets and engaging them just kind of on you i mean how's that work because i know like apaches they like you know that call for fire platform like gunships things like that but with Blackhawks, like you don't really see that. It's not like the Marine Corps that treats their uh, uh, Hueys as as a cast platform, things like that. Was that on you guys, or was, were guys on the ground like literally giving you call for fire? So the Blackhawks were not getting calls for fire. The Little Birds were because okay. they're up more in a traditional attack helicopter profile, and I'm sure they were engaging targets on their own. But I think for the most part, they were getting calls for fire. For us, it was uh, you know acquire, engage, and, and do it all on our own because we were, we were literally, you know, if you had to, to measure the diameter of that orbit that we're in, it's probably, uh, I don't know, 300 yards maybe. I mean, it's a pretty tight circle yeah. right around the target site. So we're actually shooting out from the target site with our outboard gun. So we're, we're trying to keep the bad guys from penetrating the perimeter. So we, we'd almost be right over the heads of the blocking force, I guess, and, and going around and then uh, providing fires outside of that, that their sectors. Okay, so kind of like a hasty IP sort of yeah. kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. I only, I, I only ask because call for fire interests me. I'm a JTAC, so okay. it, it, yep. it kind of falls in line. But okay, so back, back to the story. I, I apologize for going off on a tangent. But all right, so you guys crashed. Um, you were immobilized. You were you were injured in the crash. Yeah, we were all injured pretty severely. I had broken femur, broken back. I was unconscious. Uh, Ray had a broken tibia and uh, a back injury. I don't know the full extent of it. Uh, and the crew chiefs were hurt worse than that. You know, the, the seats in the front are, are a little bit better from a crash survivability perspective than the seats in the back. And, and we don't even know for sure if they got locked in. I'm sure anybody that's ridden in the back of an assault aircraft knows the crew chiefs kind of move around a little bit and they're on monkey harnesses. And the way those work is, you know, if you are going to crash, you're supposed to lock in, get back in your seat basically and, and, and lock it in. I don't even know if they had a chance to do that. It was pretty violent. We gotcha. All right. So you're on the ground. You guys are injured. I mean, at, at that point, you know, this, like you had said, the battle has progressed. Like the city's now everybody's involved in the fight now um was how long until until sugar and gordon were were on scene when they were when they were feet on the ground at the crash site to me it seemed like seconds but uh, i think part of the explanation there is that i was unconscious for some unknown period of time i think it's about 10 minutes i mean I, maybe less it, it was pretty quick i mean i know the conversation went on between them and uh, and the leadership uh, ultimately, as I understand it, General Garrison made the final call to put him in, um, or, or allow them to be put in. He, you know, he didn't he didn't order it or mandate it. He basically gave the permission, um, and I think that all that all transpired over probably less than ten minutes. Okay. All right. So <clears throat> they reach the crash site, and they they pull you they pull you from, from the uh, bird. So they pull everybody. That was kind of like one of those things, like everybody in the, you know, everybody sees the movie, things like that. Um, I mean, how, how was, how was that managed at the crash site? Getting the crew chiefs, your co-pilot yourself out. Um, I mean, what, again, that 
it's not really covered anywhere else. So, right. So Ray was able to get out on his own. He, he, as I said, he had a tibia fracture, so he was somehow able to get himself out of the seat. And and the last time I saw him, he was actually standing. I was in the right seat. He was in the left. He was standing there adjacent to the seat. We were flying doors off, so we didn't have to get the doors open. And just seems like only seconds later, Randy and Gary arrived on my side first. And uh, it was a bit of a shock, actually. I didn't expect anybody to be there that quick. And also didn't know there were only two. Uh, so my thoughts initially are, oh, this is a rescue force. Somehow they diverted and, you know, a group of assets here and they're, you know, we must have crashed right next to them or something, you know. And uh, they, they were focused, as I've always said, purely on the mission and the task at hand. You know, there was no sense of, I mean, yeah, there's a sense of urgency, but no, certainly no sense of panic or anything that would cause me concern. Uh, I obviously felt like uh, they're going to load me up in a vehicle and I'm out of here. You know, I mean, that's really the mindset that I had. And they put me on the ground. They, I had my MP5 already. They, they, uh, they, they left me with that. And then they helped the crew chiefs out. I couldn't turn around, so I never saw the crew chiefs, but I could hear them. They were, they were hurt bad. I mean, you could just tell by the sounds that uh, they were probably both incapacitated. I think, I think Tommy, who was on the left, was actually hit in the chest by his minigun. You know, they're on a, a, a swivel mount, a pintle mount, and there's a lot of movement that, that allows them to shoot. And then because of the way the aircraft hit the ground, I think, I think his gun actually hit him right in the, in the chest. And then Bill, I, I'm not sure, but uh, he was uh, he was hurt pretty bad also. And then uh, from that point on, most of the activity at the crash site was going on on the other side of the bird. And I, I might have thought about this. I could have shared a picture. But if you look at it from the air, there's a kind of an open area on the left side of the aircraft. And I was on the right side between the aircraft and a, and a, and a fence, basically, is corrugated tin wall, you could say. So the access to the site was really on the opposite side, which is fortunate for me because I've got, you know, the aircraft essentially providing cover uh, as the mob and the civilians and everybody else kind of approached from the, uh, from the left-hand side. So Randy and Gary were over there with Ray uh, doing what they could to keep, uh, uh, to keep the, the attackers at bay. But again, they were vastly outnumbered and it, it was only a matter of minutes before they, they could not, uh, not hold out any longer. So at that point, uh, so they, they were killed. You, how, I'm trying to put this together in my head. So you were, you were alone. How far away were you from the crew chiefs? I know you couldn't, I know you couldn't see them because you couldn't turn around, but you, you ended up alone when, when the, when the mob came in. Yes. Okay. Yeah, uh, Tommy was probably, or Bill, I'm sorry, was probably only five feet behind me. I mean, he was, he was. I'm sure they put him on the ground right behind me, but I, I was laying on my back on a survival kit or something. Uh, there's a great Dietz uh, painting for some of the folks that might have been uh, at the compound of Bragg, and I'm, it's hanging there, and I, I've got a copy of it. It's, and it's pretty accurate. It, it shows, uh, you know, I'm, I'm laying on something adjacent to my seat uh, on the ground there, and and we're doing what we can to hold people at bay. You know, I, I didn't touch on it, but uh, Gary actually uh, is hit first. And I didn't see it, but I heard him say something. And I'd, you know, flown with these guys on the aircraft before, so I, I, I didn't know them well. I didn't know them personally, but I knew they were. And uh, I, I recognized his voice. And then Randy came around and asked if there were any more weapons in the aircraft. And, I, you know, at that point, any sense of uh, calm that I had or confidence in, in, in this being over with was, was gone. And uh, good news is the crew chiefs put their weapons where they were supposed to be. He grabbed them both and uh, he came on and he gave me what I believe still is Gary's weapon. And uh, I, it, it only had a partial magazine left and I ended up firing a few rounds and then it, it, it ran out of rounds. And at that point, Randy called on his radio for a status and, and was told, or I heard the response was that a reaction force was in route. So he went around the nose and he made his last stand and, uh, and within probably two or three minutes he went down. I mean, it is, the volume of fire 
is like it was like being at small arms range. Uh, you know, I, I've been, I've read reports from the Somalis that uh, 27 Somalis were killed at crash site too. So, I mean, that's at best four of us shooting. You know, it's it's probably me accounting for zero, and Randy and Gary accounting for for 27. But Ray may have got off a few rounds also. So, I mean, you know, if you if you're killing that many people, that's a lot of freaking shooting. That's an incredible amount of shooting, especially being totally outgunned there and exposed. I mean, there's, there's not, there wasn't really cover and concealment out there. Right. I mean, right. you know, when I read, when I read, when I read the book, it seemed like they were utilizing the aircraft as, as kind of their base of fire. Um, whether or not that was accurate or not, I have no idea. Yeah. Well, again, I couldn't see it, but I don't know how it could be because they were on the opposite side of the bird and that's where the attack was coming from. So they're essentially just making their last stand almost in the open, maybe behind a tree or something. Uh, but, you know, there's really nothing over there if you look at the overhead picture. Gotcha. Well, God. And well, I've had, I've had, I've had CAG dudes on before. Everybody knows who listens or watches this podcast knows the type of metal that they're capable of and that they're made of. But um, from there, um, so Randy and Gordon are killed. You're, you're out of ammo. He handed you, handed you the rifle. You're dry. What happens next? Is it just a, a case of just the, the crowds totally convening on your location or, or what? Yeah. And they all came from the left. And again, it, it's sort of, it, it's, it's easy to envision when you see the, the, the imagery from, the, from overhead. It's the access to that area is all from that side. So that's where the whole attack came from. And it was uh, pretty, uh, pretty frightening. I, you know, I don't feel it anymore, but I can tell you at the time, uh, I was, uh, you know, certain that this is it. I mean, these, these people just killed everybody else at this crash site they're overrunning the site and i'm done you know i mean that's, yeah. that's pretty much what was in my head uh it wasn't so much giving up as just sort of a realization of this is just reality you know i mean there's i can't i can't hide i can't run i got no ammo left i did have my my m9 was still in its holster and i cannot explain never have been able to why i never even pulled it out and and you know what it could be argued it it would have just got me killed. I don't know, but I, it wasn't a conscious decision. It wasn't a, no, don't, you know, don't pull that out. It was, I just never even thought of it. I, I, I was just so focused on the, on the submachine guns. Um, but so when they came around the nose of the bird, uh, which was the first time I saw them, it, uh, you know, they were, they were surprised because I, I think they thought they had killed everyone. And I was laying there. I had, I had, Gary's weapon across my chest and uh, essentially resigned myself to the fact that they were going to just beat me to death. You know, uh, they, they had done some pretty horrific things to other people in the region and uh, didn't expect to be treated any differently. And then, you know, I did think back about survival school and what they, what they taught us in survival school about this moment, which is basically, this is the moment where it goes from, this is not a fight anymore. This is survival. Right. Yes. And, I do distinctly remember making that decision that I'm now trying to survive. You know, it's, this is not a fight. The fight's over. And I, I didn't antagonize them. I didn't, you know, I didn't John Wayne and spit in their face. I didn't, you know, I just let it go. Let it, you know, played possum. And, and it probably saved my life because, you know, at, at that point, everything's so volatile. No one's going to know if, you know, they put a bullet in my head, at, you know, after they ran over the site. I mean, there's no, no accountability for anything like that at that point. So uh, I actually ended up helping them get my survival gear off because uh, our gear at the time had clips on it like, uh, like a water ski vest, right? And I've always, yeah. I've always made the joke that I didn't see any Somalis water skiing. So they probably <laughs> don't know how that works. So, I, I mean, they were pulling on it and pulling on it and pulling on it, and I finally just hey, I got this, you know, and I, I, I unclipped it. And, you know, the thing to remember is these people have absolutely nothing. So everything is valuable to them. I mean, we had kids in the field fighting over empty plastic water bottles. You know, I mean, it was just so everything that I had that, that any person in that group could get was 
I don't want to go so far as to call it a treasure, but it had value, right? So, you know, survival vest, night vision goggles, you know, weapon, all of that stuff. So they're all clamoring for this stuff. And then, the, and then there's a couple that are more uh, uh, interested in, in beating me to death. And they started to. They broke my nose, my cheekbone, my eye socket. And, uh, you know, again, I'm still thinking it's, it's not likely I'm making it through this, but, you know, there's, there's nothing I can do but, but try to survive it. And uh, eventually, and I, get, I actually get this information from Mark Bowden's research on Black Hawk Down. He, he, I don't remember this, but he says he interviewed a guy who fired rounds in the air and got everybody under control. And I, and I honestly don't remember that. Now, you know, maybe it's not true. I am not sure. But I can tell you that things did calm down and the beating stopped and, and somehow, some way, they came to the realization that I was worth more to them alive than dead and they stopped uh, beating me. But they continued to rip all my gear off. And at some point, I think when they were pulling on my boot, they, uh, my femur went out the backside of my leg, which was, again a, a miracle that that didn't create a, a more significant issue um and then they finally got everything off of me except for my my t-shirt and my uh my desert tan uh two-piece flight suit bottom that's that's all i had left on and uh and that's when they uh they threw dirt in my face and wrapped a rag around my head and said i was going to die there and hoisted me up in the air and, and carried me out that's a it's a fat it, that's a really it's a really good indicator of you were kind of talking about the whole machismo you know don't spit and it's funny because i literally have let me just point there i literally have the special forces creed hanging up and there's a line that says i pray that i may have the strength to spit upon my enemy but everything you learn in seer school is de-escalation it's a survival game there's no battle of wits you know, look out for your mates if you're with your mates, but it's de-escalation. So it's a, it's a, that's a really good kind of, all right, here's, here's the lore versus here it is in practice. You, you're, you're beat to a pulp. You have a significant compound fracture, you know, which it, it, that to me, you know, your femur sticking out the back of your leg, that's, a, that's a life-threatening injury. The crowd, for whatever reason, calms down. And you're bagged, you're told you're going to die here, and you're taken away. So this is the part of the story that nobody knows. What happens afterwards? What is the captivity like? So where do they take you, and what happened from there? So, and you're absolutely right. And had I never gone to survival school, I'm not sure what I would have done. I really don't know, you know, and I, I have always said, I appreciate the fact that I, I did have the opportunity to go to sea level seer there at Bragg. And, and actually I think at this point, there's only two of us that have actually gone through that school and been held that it may have changed. Last I knew that was the case. So obviously they were interested in what I thought about the training. And I, I again, I've always said it, it was part of why I survived. There's no question about it. And, and it does create that, sort of discrepancy, I suppose, in who we identify ourselves as and then what we're taught to do. And I, I don't know how you reconcile that other than, you know, once the fight's over, the fight's over, and you just gotta, you just gotta recognize that. And as long as you're not doing like you said, which is, you know, doing it for your own betterment at the, at the cost of others, then, then you're still living, you know, you're adhering to whatever ethos we all share. Well, in that ethos, you know, I think there's there's definitely room for interpretation for sure. I mean, yeah, so long you don't want to you don't want to give away any information. You don't want to to provide the enemy any sort of propaganda uh, value, things like that. These are all things that are taught at the C level course. But again, like like I said, that that machismo, the the alpha type, the one sixtieth, the SF, the CAG, the Rangers, every everybody that goes through that kind of thing, they all say yes. I I pray that I have the the strength to spit upon my enemy. But in in practice, it is one hundred percent about survival. That's fat. I find that absolutely fascinating because you are one of the few guys who you're a seer level C graduate who actually went through it. Um, guys like me. 
when you go through the course, it's, it's cerebral. It's, it's not tangible. It's all cerebral. This is a very, this is very much a what if scenario. And I mean, is it, is it, is it safe for me to assume when you went through the course that that was your mindset too? Like, this is just a totally, it could happen, but it's, it's such a, a rare chance of this, you know, coming to fruition or when, or did you go through the course and as an aviator, you were just like, that's a distinct possibility that I can be shot down and captured. No, I, I can, I don't know how everyone else felt, but I felt like this, there's no way this is ever going to happen to me. Gotcha. You know, I just, it's, uh, but I, not to say I didn't appreciate the training or really enjoy it. I always said it was probably the, outside of flight school, the second best training I ever went through. I really did. I thought it was great. But, you know, all the stuff we learned in that short period of time, because, you know, for me, I didn't go through the, the full uh, Q course, or I didn't, you know, go to ranger school. So for me, that's my sort of moment uh, to suffer like all the rest of you and, and uh, hopefully become better as a result of it all. But anyway, um, yeah, so uh, back to your question. Um, so, I, you know, immediately following that, that being picked up and, and hoisted overhead moment, I've always described this, uh, this period of very brief period of time where I actually felt like I was above looking down and, and uh, you know, it, what does that mean? Well, the best explanation that I've ever had provided to me was the pain got so intense for me that my brain is trying to convince itself that this is not real. And it makes sense to me because I, I, I distinctly remembered it and I also remembered it as though I'm a, an observer and not the person in the midst of all that madness. So if, if that is what happened, it worked and kind of wish it would have lasted for a little bit longer because, uh, you know, before I knew it, I was right back in the middle of it. But it was, I mean, it was, you know, you can imagine, uh, you know, femur fractures, you just watch them on a football field and you're like, oh, you know, you, it, it hurts you just to see it. And I can tell you that my femur didn't hurt anywhere near as much as my back did. And it was just excruciating. And, you know, they don't care. They're just hauling me around like, uh, like a rag doll. So uh, it, was, it was pretty rough. And then uh, I ended up getting, now, again, this comes from Mark Bowden's interviews. He says that there was a, another group within the clan structure in Somalia that actually took me away from the original people who captured me. And these are rivals of Adib, okay? Now, again, I'm oblivious to all this at the time, but uh, he says that Adib, when he found out that these people had me, then either paid a ransom or applied some kind of influence to ultimately get me back. So that accounts for a couple of moves. I end up getting moved three times. And, uh, you know, the first one was, uh, I only spent a, a few hours in this first place, and it was a, basically a tactical interrogation, right? You get these guys that they, they don't know how to interrogate, they don't know what they're doing, they're just basically, you know, a pat-down search and, you know, a couple of threats, and, and they, they left me alone. Uh, and then I got thrown on the back of a flatbed truck, at least that's what it felt like, you know, they always had a, a bag over my head, but it, it's like being on a, a metal uh, flat bed, not not a like a pickup truck bed that's corrugated, but a, an actual flat piece of metal, and and then like a tarp thrown over me, and then I got I got moved to where I would spend uh, I guess it would be maybe two or three days, and I was in this little uh, octagonal building. We're thinking it's somewhere in the northeast part of the city. I don't think we ever really figured out for sure where some of these places were, uh, but it was in the neighborhood because I could hear kids playing outside. Uh, but I was also very close to wherever the, uh, the convoy traveled because that night after being put in this place, uh, the, the convoy, which is actually trying to get to Super 6-1, comes right by my compound. And, and I'm thinking they've already figured out where I am. This is a rescue because, I mean, you can hear the gunshots and, 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 uh, and some of the larger projectiles, I can actually hear them flying through the air, right? And explosions all over the place. And I, I figured one of the observation birds tracked me with a sensor. And, and somehow they tracked me all the way to this location. 
and you know, the, someone's going to bust through this door, and then the convoy just kind of passes by and keeps keeps uh, shooting, and and the, the the fires become distant again. It was it was incredible, the sort of elation or or excitement or anxiety, you know, all rolled into one, followed by disappointment, I guess, as as it passed on by. Oh my God, I can't imagine. I can't. I mean, that's, that's horrifying. I did not personally. I did not know that was the case. That the yeah. that the, the the ground extraction force literally rolled by your location. And I'm. I mean, it was so close. Like I'm sitting in in my office in my house right now. It would be about the same distance to the street. Is how how close it felt. Like they they actually came right by. And uh, again, you know, just an interesting, trivial little. Coincidence, I suppose, that, uh, uh, that that would indicate maybe where I was. But uh, anyhow, and then you know that first night goes by. They had chained me up. They uh, uh, they, uh, they but otherwise they just tossed me on this concrete floor, and I was able to get out of the chain. And it's they didn't they didn't chain it real tight. And I was sweating, and so I, I was able to get out of the chains. And and it was. I don't think it's too sensitive to talk about it. They talk about little victories, right? It was a little victory. I mean, it was, man, you know, I can get the dirt out of my eyes. I can turn my legs so it's not, you know, throbbing in, in pain quite as much. I can reposition myself and, you know, and, oh, yeah, I just got out of your chains, you idiots. You know, it was, you know, one of those kind of kind of moments, right? And it's sort of like, uh, at least the way the compound was set up, uh, which I, I know is dramatically different now, but there were there was just gravel outside of your cell, and and that's exactly the way it was here. And I could hear them when they came up, so I heard this gravel, and I wrapped that chain around my wrist again to make it look like I was still chained up. And uh, the door opens, and bang, a round goes off, and it hits the floor, and then the round ends up in my left arm. And a piece of the concrete floor ends up in the backside of my broken femur leg, basically maybe uh, six inches above where the the femur came out. So I'm like, I, I don't want to make light of it, but you know, when you get shot, it's kind of shocking that 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 you've been shot, you know, and, and you have to sort of reconcile it in your mind and. I looked down and I could see the round is actually sticking out of my arm because it, all the velocity was gone after it hit the concrete. So I reached over and I grabbed it and I burned the crap out of my fingers. And I've always kind of joked around about a lesson learned on that too, that that, that rounds are hot. And, and if you are going to pull out your own bullet, you probably ought to give it a second or use some tweezers or something because it, 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 uh, it burned the tips of my fingers when I grabbed it. But anyway. Uh, superficial wound, nothing really. That actually, the one on my leg was worse. I, there's still a scar there, um, but more psychological than anything else. No, no, no real threat to my life. And whoever it was 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 I always said a true coward. Didn't even show their face and ran off before they even saw you know what they failed to accomplish. And uh, you know, then the the real guards came in after they heard the shooting, and and they were like, you know, what's going on? And I I, I remember going like this and. I made like a, a gun and pointed at my arm and like, you know, what's going on here? Can't you control your people or something like that sort of, sort of gesture? And they talked among themselves and, and just went the other way after they saw I wasn't hurt real bad. And then they started talking about making the video. And, you know, this is always the, 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 the big test, I guess, or the, you know, it, it's, it's, it's become more culturally part of who we are today. But again, this is 1993. So we're not quite so in tune at that point in history in, in the permanency of video, right? Now everyone gets it, right? You know, I do selfies of myself in a compromising situation. It's never going away if I share that with somebody, right? So I think we have, as a culture, we understand. But then it was, it was, it was just a little bit different is all, all I can say. But I still had this appreciation for the fact that this is a big deal and how this gets handled is is going to make a big difference not just for me but potentially the you know the political situation the the tactical effort everything right because it has it's a such 
power, the, the, the media and how these things are used. So again, I'm thinking back to survival school, you know, what should I do here? And initially I went with the approach of, I'm basically not going to say anything, right? I'm just going to, they can, can ask away and I'll just play stupid. And then, you know, it went on for a while and, and they had a guy there with a camera and, and you could tell they were getting impatient. I'm sitting up, so you can imagine it's, I mean, it's not torture, but it's torturous to be holding your weight off of your spine when you have a, a compression fracture. And uh, I finally got to the point where I was getting a little frustrated and thought, all right, I need to try plan B here. So I, again, thought about the way they taught us to respond to these questions, and I, and I decided to apply the logic. And it worked flawlessly. I mean, it absolutely worked flawlessly. You know, the, 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 the things that, uh, that I answered to were my name, basically everything that I said was written on my name tag, right? Uh, my name tag had a picture of a black dark helicopter. It's got my rank on there. It's got my name. I gave them that information. Uh, they said, you know, uh, uh, something about you ranger. And I said, I'm a black hawk pilot again. And all that's because they captured me laying next to a black hawk, right? I mean, you have to apply some logic here, to, you know, to say, you know, Blackhawk, what's a Blackhawk? You know, that would be kind of stupid. So I, I, I told them that. And then they were, they were after really the political questions, which is where it gets a little more difficult to figure out, all right, how do I reconcile this? And the two things that they had been asking over and over and over were, you kill the people innocent, and then uh, how you think this mission in Somalia, those are their exact words. And I, I've replayed that video 500 times, so I know exactly what they said. And to the first question where they said, you kill the people innocent, I said, innocent people being killed is not good. And then they said, how do you think this mission in Somalia? And I said, I'm a soldier, I do what I'm told. And that was it. And again, it was like I applied the lessons learned, the, the, the logic and the techniques that I've been trained to apply. And in this scenario, anyway, it worked absolutely flawlessly because they thought they had something. They, they had me talking on camera. They grabbed that video, ran out the door. And I'm told by CNN that, that, that they actually had the video in Atlanta within 15 minutes and they broadcast it to 127 countries within uh, like a half hour when it was shot, which is amazing when you think about when that was. Uh, and the, the one credit I'll give to CNN is that they called my parents and they said, hey, we have something, uh, video evidence of your son's whereabouts. You, you know, we're giving you a heads up. It's gonna air live in about five minutes. We just want you to know. And of course, obviously they turned on the TV and uh, they had a heads up that it was coming. and. Uh, still pretty painful to watch, I'm sure, but uh, in the end, it ended up arguably being a life insurance policy for me because now everybody knew that I was alive, everybody knew that they had me, and, and they were, whether they agreed that the Geneva Convention applies, they, they were going to be held to that standard either way, so it ended up, didn't feel like a good thing at the time, I can tell you honestly, but it ended up being a good thing. So, I mean, at that point, was your fa your family was informed by the army that you were missing in action? I would assume. Yes, all six of us, our families were at that point. Official status was MIA. Yeah. Okay. So the video released. Obviously, I can definitely see because that that is the worst case scenario in a, in a POW experience. They turn the video they turn the video camera on. It's either a gotcha moment. They want you to read a prepared statement, something like that. But in the end, it, it, it was just proof, proof of life for the United States government. How did, how did we go from, all right, I've been moved around a couple times, I'm, I'm injured, I'm now being used for potential political reasons to your safe return back to U.S. forces? Yeah, so after the video was shot, they moved me. There was actually a lot of people in the room for the video. You know, one thing I found, uh, uh, this is really dating myself, but there was a there was a movie from the uh, might have been the early '70s called "The Gods Must Be Crazy," where uh, uh, it's like some 
somebody in an airplane throws a Coke bottle out the window or something. I don't even remember the movie. I just remember the story about it. And there's a tribe on the ground that, that this bottle falls from, and it's to them, it's like something from the gods, right? And it's, I always felt that that was sort of how I was looked at by the Somali people. You can imagine for them that the U U.S. is this sort of distant, faraway land, and we're all almost aliens, right? We're, we, we are so different from them. We, we have all this technology. We have all these things that they probably just see in bits and pieces because you got to remember, Internet really didn't even exist at the time. So... You know what they know of us comes to them either through maybe a, a VHS movie or or something like that, right? So actually have an American in your living room is is sort of a uh, a, a, a very un, uh, it's definitely an anomaly, but it's almost a it creates a lot of interest in in, in attention, which is definitely not something I would have really thought about, but, but no, no question. It was like, everybody wanted to come see the American, right? So when they shot the video, they, there was a lot of people in there. It was a kind of a big moment and, and indeed realized with all that attention, somebody's going to figure out that that's what's going on. So they moved me again right after the video was shot. And, uh, you know, I didn't mention this yet, but I, I did write my own book and I wrote my own book for the exactly the reason that we're having this conversation. When I, when I went to see Black Hawk Down, which I didn't go right away, but I finally did, I walked out of the theater thinking, man, I mean, the movie ends and I'm in captivity and no one knows what happened, right? So what better opportunity than this to write a book? And I had held off. I had actually written the outline to one, you know, going all the way back to when it first happened. And then you know, I think one of the things we all do honor and respect is is the fact that we don't talk a lot about operational stuff, you know, at least not when we're in it. And that's part of why I didn't do it. But now, I mean, I'm retired. This has been 10 years. This stuff is not really operationally significant anymore. You know, Mark already was given access to everything. They made a movie out of it. I could probably tell my part of the story, you know, and not, and not be uh, considered... Uh, uh, persona non grata. So I, uh, I felt like the time was right. And I, and I did. And it, uh, it, it was the timing was right. It was very, very uh, sought after uh, project. And it, it became a New York Times bestseller itself, actually. And it, the title's in the company of heroes. And I, and I chose that title because that is truly how I always felt when I was an operational guy that, you know, we are in the company of heroes. That's just who we serve with. And it's, I've always felt this is just a tremendous honor uh, to have ever even served, never mind in combat and in situations like this specific one we're talking about. So, so that, you know, if there's, if there's interest in learning more about this part of the story, it is a absolute, I, I'm very proud of it. It's hard to find because we sold, uh, sold out a couple of printings, but it's, uh, it's available in all formats and, uh, and from any, any, any of the usual locations. So um, I was uh, I was moved again, and as I wrote in the in the book, this is one situation where I thought I had a chance to escape, and they had put me in the back seat of a car, threw a tarp over me again, and now again you can imagine. I don't know, you know, I'm sure there's many folks listening who have had pretty significant injuries. The thing about ortho injuries, at least my experience, and I've had a fair number through playing sports and this and all that, is that it doesn't seem to hurt right away and it doesn't seem to hurt necessarily when you're not moving it. But as soon as you try to move anything related to that injury, it, I mean, the pain just absolutely spikes. Right. So when I was in that first couple of days and they weren't moving me around, it actually was tolerable even without pain medicine. But man, as soon as they, you start to manipulate it, you know, either whether it's a result of a trauma, the swelling or whatever, it, it, the pain was ridiculous. So when they stuffed me in this car, I was hyperventilating. And I mean, the sweat was probably projectile coming out of my, my body because it, the pain was so bad. And they, and they threw this tarp over me. And then they actually sat on me because as they're driving through the city, they don't want people to uh, suspect that there's something in this car, right? So they're trying to act like, you know, it's just a bunch of thugs driving through the city. And when they got to the second location, which would actually be the third location at this point, they stopped and they all got out and they left me alone. 
Now, the first thought is they're leaving me to get killed here. They, they, I've served their purpose. They made the video. They're just abandoning this vehicle and, and someone will find me and they're going to, you know, I'm going to get killed here. So I'm trying to be quiet and I'm kind of trying to assess the situation and then thought about, okay, any chance they could have left the keys in the car, right? I don't know. So I start to kind of ease myself up and my plan is I kind of feel like I'm in the northeast part of the city. If the keys are in the car, I'm going to start this damn thing and figure out how to drive it and just head southwest, right? That's my plan. Well, never got a chance to even try to get over the seat and they got back and they got back in the car. Apparently they had gone ahead. My, I speculate that they just went to pre-coordinate access to this compound. We had to go through a, a like a, a garage door gate kind of thing and then get in there and I guess they just wanted to go make sure everything was kosher before they went through. So I spent a few days there. I came up with a few more ideas there. I, I asked them to wash my shirt and uh, my my reasoning was not to for hygiene purposes but I thought all right we got helicopters flying around maybe there's some remote chance they'll see this brown t-shirt hanging on a clothesline somewhere you know just anything anything you could come up with Right, you know, I, I, I do uh, characterize myself as a problem solver. I'm always trying to come up with solutions. And, you know, that was one. And I, I remembered, you know, trying to exercise a little bit because, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. Am I going to be here six months? You, you don't know. And I, I'm completely immobilized. So I'm grabbing the windowsill and sort of pulling myself up, trying to get a little bit of elevation in my heart rate so I don't completely... Uh, turn into jelly while I'm while I'm laying there and just stuff like that you know try to to eat and drink whatever they gave me you know again they teach you that stuff in, in school you know it's you, you got to eat and drink uh, remain hydrated to survive and then over time what the Somalis will describe as is what uh, the Red Cross called the reverse Stockholm syndrome. So the Stockholm syndrome, if you're not familiar with it, is when you as a captive sympathize with your captors because they indoctrinate you. The reverse Stockholm syndrome, which I've never heard of any other time than this, is when your captors start to like you and sympathize with you. And, and that was not a strategy. All it was is an is a, is a un, unintended consequence of doing what they taught us to do in survival school, which is just show general respect and, and courtesy, right? And, you know, again, maybe the curriculum's changed. It's been 30 years since I went, but, you know, it goes back to our conversation earlier, but you don't spit in their face. You know, you, you, they're Muslim. So when, they, when it was prayer time, they were praying right in the room with me, right? If, if I were, uh, you know, trying to play John, and I don't mean to pick on John Wayne, I respect the man and all his movies, but it's, you know, it's a reference we all get. If, if I if I want to play John Wayne, I could, you know, say derogatory things during that prayer time. But, that you know, that would hit them at their very core. So it, that is obviously not the right thing to do. And I was respectful and I was reverent and I let them pray. And then I was given a Bible from the Red Cross. And, uh, you know, they thought I was actually uh, studying the Bible as well. What they didn't know is I was actually using it as a, as a diary and I was keeping notes in it. And I still have it, and they, they let me leave with it. And they never knew that I was actually keeping a log, but I, I chronicled everything from the moment the RPG hit the aircraft all the way until I got released. And uh, and again, it, it was sort of playing off their, their, and I respect the fact that they're very uh, faithful people, and uh, and they they showed me that same respect in kind. And and you know, it goes back to what you were taught when you were five, if you're grew up in a home like I grew up in, you know, you treat other people the way you want them to treat you. And, and that's kind of how you get by life. And, and, and it worked. And, and they ended up, I'll use the word liking. I mean, I didn't see that outwardly, but the Red Cross described it as absolutely. They, they thought that the Somalis uh, were somewhat sympathetic and didn't want to see harm come to me. And it was like, well, that's just bonus points, you know. I mean, if they want to help keep me alive, you know, if their if their orders are to cap me when a rescue force comes, uh, that's probably going to at least cause them to hesitate, if nothing else, and that could be enough. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's. I mean, you're you're literally uh, the walking embodiment of that entire curriculum, working, and that's that's incredible to me because, like I said, 
all, all that survival training, that's all cerebral. There, there's, there's nothing tangible about it whatsoever because you don't imagine yourself in that situation. So that is, that's fascinating to me that that curriculum, it saved your life. It really did. More than once, I would argue, more than once for sure. And, you know, it, it gave you strategies. Like I've always said, I, I don't know what I would have done otherwise because, you know, if you have no training and all you have is the big four, right? And the big four was great in previous conflicts and, you know, we didn't really understand the nuances of all this, but it doesn't work. I mean, it would, and the reason SEER school exists, as everyone knows, is, is because of the experiences of POWs in Vietnam and, and trying to apply the big four and, and realizing that that's just not going to work long term. I mean, it works at a tactical level in the first, you know, few minutes, but when you start, you know, getting in, in, into the various uh, follow-on experiences that you're going to experience, you cannot rely only on that. Sure. No, they they beat you silly. Yeah, they, there's no question. They they would become frustrated, and it's all it's all about managing managing expectations, trying to control the narrative as best you can, but more so controlling that situation. It's yeah. easy to get into a battle of wits. It's difficult having the humility and the wherewithal to say, okay, this if I do this, I might get this. If I do this, I might last another day. So that is. It, it, that's incredibly fascinating to me. It's it's incredibly, it's comforting to know that that training was all worth it too. Because hell, you never know. You might find yourself in a situation like that for any number of reasons. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And uh, again, I can't, you know, I can't I can't say enough how much I appreciate the fact that I had the opportunity to uh, to attend the school. Uh, I do have, you know, all this has been good, but I, I've I've one screw up that I have to disclose, and uh, you know, I, it, you could argue is innocent enough, but it, it it didn't meet my standard. I could tell you that. So I mentioned the Red Cross. I was visited without warning by by a, a delegate from the Red Cross, and you knew something was up because they they came in and they cleaned the room. They actually gave me some fresh pajamas to put on. They, I, they get, I had been laying on concrete for five days and they brought in a, a, a nasty mattress, but it was still a mattress and I, and I was able to lay down on that. And I'm thinking, all right, so you know, this is, this is a show for something. Am I either gonna get you know, released or what? Either way, you know, it's progress, right? And uh, all of a sudden this Caucasian blonde woman walks in the door, she's, she's from, uh, 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 Switzerland and uh, Suzanne Hofstetter is her name and she's there to hold my hand basically I mean it was pretty powerful it really was because you know you, you play the tough guy and you're playing the tactical game all this time and now all of a sudden there's this woman there that you, at least you think you can trust you know you always gotta wonder yeah but uh, you know you think you can trust and and uh, it, it, it was an emotional moment because it sort of gives you that connection to the outside world and which you sort of put in the back burner until all of a sudden there it is and it reminds you that you know that there is there is something beyond this and anyway uh she she didn't have anything with her because they hadn't not given her any notice but she spent a few moments there and and, and I, she i was able to write a letter and i wrote a letter at home and then i wrote a letter to the guys in the unit and uh she took those and then immediately following her when I've just sort of gotten rattled a little bit emotionally, there's these two journalists that show up. And, and this is something that was never really covered in survival school. And it probably has been since, but not when I was there. All right, now what do I do? So uh, with no warning and no time to really think about it. And I thought, okay, this is an opportunity for me to use this. So I decided it would be to my advantage to explain what happened, essentially recreating our conversation today. I'm gonna to tell you what happened from the moment the RPG hit the aircraft all the way through this moment in time. And how, you know, what could possibly be bad about that, right? That's, should give intel and information and, and at least situational awareness uh, to the command and, and anybody that might be uh, pondering or, or planning a, a rescue attempt. And again, at this point, there's still six MIA, right? So it's just not me. It's not just me at this point. So 
they we go through all that and they're you know they're taking their notes and and i'm getting comfortable with talking and that's where you got to be careful is is when you get comfortable with talking and and the most dangerous interrogator is the friendly interrogator. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And and they slipped in the money shot, which is, uh, so so. What do you think about how this is, uh, how things are going here? And uh, and just without even thinking, I said, well, something's gone wrong here, and and it's innocent enough, and and you'd have to be a complete moron to not realize something had gone wrong there. You know, I mean, it started out as a as a relief operation, and then. It was a security operation, and now it's turned into basically a, a combat zone, which is never intended. And uh, but I still felt I had crossed a line that I shouldn't have crossed. And as soon as the words came out of my mouth, I'm, oh, you know, I, I screwed I that up. Yeah, I'm going to get debriefed. Yeah, I'm going to get debriefed on that one, right? And uh, and I beat myself up on it pretty good. I mean, for a couple of days, I was really, really upset with myself. Uh, you know, in the end. You gotta also realize I don't know what's going on outside, right? I don't even know that there's been multiple aircraft shot down. I don't know there's 18 killed. I don't know about the scope of this battle. You know, when I got shot down, we had lost one bird, but that was it. So, you know, I, I'm missing a big part of the equation here and how much attention is being put on this thing. So I don't really recognize the fact that I mean this thing is dominating the news. If this if this been well, it probably wasn't coronavirus level, but I mean it was. It, it, it was dominating the news. There was not much else going on at the time. And uh, uh, anyway, I, I, I didn't uphold the standard that I felt I should have. And now was I, you know, was I overly critical? Yeah, you'd argue either way. But anyway, you, the, the lesson learned is what you just alluded to is someone who really knows how to interrogate is going to get you into that position. And that's when you're going to potentially say something that you, you might not have said otherwise. Oh man, it's that's the truth. Yeah. The, they, they, the beatings you can take. Yeah. The beatings you can take. It's when they start when they start playing games. Yeah. yeah. That's that's when it becomes most difficult. All right, so let's let's just let's finish off with your release. How did how did that go down? I mean, where I mean, what was it did it seem official? Did it seem nuanced? Did it seem like they were just giving up? I mean, what were your impressions there? So I, I got a radio. They, they actually asked me about a radio. They gave me a radio. And uh, I was listening to things going on. The president had sent the former ambassador to Somalia back into country. And uh, so I felt that added credibility to the fact that they, they were saying that I was going to be released. But I also tried not to get my hopes up too high. And when the day actually came, uh, you know, I, I played it the way I played everything else with caution. Uh, the, the guy said he was a Red Cross doctor. I, I assumed it was true, but didn't automatically believe him. Uh, he had morphine, and that's when I became more of a believer. That uh, he, he gave me a shot of morphine right there in captivity. And then from there, it was stick me in the back of a vehicle and get me to the compound. And at that point, I saw people I knew, and I knew at that point it was over. My God. I... You, like I said, you're one of the few. You're one of the few POWs in, well, since Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam was really the last conflict we saw actual POWs, uh, POW stories, lessons learned, things like that. But that was different. That was, I, even though it was very much an unconventional war, it was, it was very much a, you know, a POW experience. You, you kind of found yourself in the middle. Um, between like that whole hostage versus POW scenario. And that it, I gotta give you props because that's difficult to maneuver. You're supposed to act different in each scenario. Um, and you kind of had to, you kind of had to uh, skirt that line. So that's incredible. So Chief, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. Um, I, I learned a lot because I'll be the first to admit, I had not read your book yet. Um, it's definitely the next thing I do read, um, because I think it's, it is an important story. Um, and like you and I had said before we started recording, I mean, this, this is kind of a segment that gets put on the back burner. I mean, there, there was a lot going on that day, you know, like you said, 18 KIA, you had 
dozens wounded. You had all this going down. You had birds going down. You had Medal of Honor worthy actions. You had Distinguished Service Cross worthy actions. Um, so it, it's it's one of those it's one of those stories that kind of unfortunately gets lost in the shuffle. And I'm I'm so glad you were able to sit down, take the time, and and educate myself and others about that because it is important. And that's why I've always found it. Whenever I do these interviews with like these amazing, amazing service members, um, they have all these little, they have these stories that just in the grand scheme of things get forgotten or pushed aside, things like that. And so it's important to bring those back to the uh, forefront. So Chief, can't thank you enough. And I'm sure you've been told it a million times, but welcome home. I appreciate that very much, Nick. And uh, thanks for... Uh allowed me the venue to share the story and, uh, and plug in the book. It is a great book. I, people will enjoy it if they go out and grab it. I've always said Black Hawk Down is the second best book about Somalia ever written. So, so prove me right and, and go read it. I hope you enjoy it. Absolutely. That's on my list of things. The book is In the Company of Heroes by Chief Warrant Officer Mike Durant. Guys, do yourself a favor. Go get the book. It's too easy. It, it's on, I'm imagining it's an it's a e-book format too, electronic book. It is. I actually, I actually read it, so you'll actually get to hear my voice for hours on end. Wow, fantastic. <laughs> you guys can even do the audiobook version. Oh, man, Chief, can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, take it easy. All right, take, take, take care. My best to all of you. Thank you.